Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship. To find info on our speaker and series, please check the podcast description. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! Now, Galatians is one of my favorites because God used it in my teenage years to help me not only understand what the gospel is, but to trust it. To actually trust what it says about this gospel of grace that's found in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Now, I grew up in a strong evangelical home. Both my parents came to faith in Christ as adults in their mid-20s. And so the gospel was very um, at the forefront because they had both experienced that incredible saving grace of God in their own lives. But whenever you have new believers in Christ who have children at the same time that they're figuring out their faith, you know they don't have it all together. My parents were great, but they weren't perfect. And I think in our home, um, we experienced, it was not a legalistic home, but I think we bumped up against some things that we were trying to figure out collectively as a family. And maybe that left me a little bit confused through my teenage years on what the gospel of grace was. Now, I'm sure my own kids, if they were here today sharing their story of the gospel of grace in the home they grew up in, they might have something to say about their upbringing as well. But when I was in my late teen years and early 20s, I was attending Briarcus Bible College, and it was there that, uh, through a study on Galatians, that some things came clear to me about what this faith really is all about and, uh, and how to trust in it. So some of the questions at that time I was asking were still, did I have to earn it or was it complete in Jesus Christ, this salvation? And if it was fully complete in Christ, why did I feel so often that I had to either do something or keep my salvation or prove my salvation? Was this an external pressure that was coming on to me from maybe my upbringing or some other source, maybe someone else's standard of righteousness or something. Was it an external thing or was it an internal need that I had? An internal understanding that, well, how come I still have a problem and struggle with sin if it's complete with Christ on the cross? And so I'm wrestling with that. And often I think I cried out like the Apostle Paul did in, well, that's interesting. I wondered where those slides went. So, (laughs) there they are. It's not up there. Romans 7, it's fairly familiar to those of you who have been around the faith for a while. Paul says, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? I love that last line. Thanks be to God who delivers me through my own efforts. (laughs) No, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's our deliverance. So Paul wrote both Romans and Galatians, and so you will find a lot of similar ideas and themes in both Galatians and Romans if you're reading those. Galatians is highly personal for me because it settled for me what this gospel of salvation was all about by faith in Christ and not by works of righteousness. Now, that's where we're going to get to, but I want to share something about our vision statement because we've been talking a lot this last fall about being a transformative presence in our community. And our vision statement is empowered by the gospel message. The language of it 
comes out of an understanding of what Galatians speaks to about this very essence of what the gospel is. You don't have transformation if you don't have the good news of Jesus Christ. And so they're linked. Out of that vision statement, we came up with a one-year vision to emphasize something in the life of our church. And I put these words together to see the church come alive because we got involved in the community and we met people who are far from Jesus. And the way that I see this working is when we meet someone who does not yet know the Lord and God uses our life to help point them to Jesus, it becomes very exciting. We, we come alive in Christ. We start to realize, man, that's way better than the other things in my life I'm trying to fill my life with to give me excitement. When someone is in my life, and God is using me to point them towards Christ that they might meet Christ, I come alive. And we put four goals down where we're going to say, well, how is this going to happen in the life of our church unless we're strategic about trying to do some of these things? And so we've increased our dependency on the Spirit through prayer. That's why we've had these praise and worship nights, and tomorrow, the day of prayer and fasting, we send out email prayer requests every week, and if you want to get on that list, you can just talk to Alex in the office or go to our website, sign up. You can be a part of the prayer team. There's various ways in which prayer happens through all of our small groups, life groups, Bible study groups. Number two, get individuals in the church as a whole involved in the community. Number three, help our people develop significant relationships with people far from Jesus. It's one thing to meet someone, but sometimes we don't know, well, how do I actually take the meeting and counterpart to a connection and relationship part? And then get our people to invite people to meet Jesus. That's, that's the goal. If somehow we can meet people far from Jesus, if somehow we can build a significant relational connection with them, is there a way that we can help them know Christ as, as we know Christ, that they too can meet Jesus? Which is why we are partnering with organizations like Adult and Teen Challenge and Ruth and Naomi's Mission, Evans Elementary next door over here, Society for Community Living next door over here. It's why we're running the Alpha course right now, because we saw that as one of the ways in which you could invite someone to come out and meet Jesus. And it's going great. I mean, the Holy Spirit is present, creating an atmosphere of invitation for people to explore who Christ is. Pray for us. As was mentioned in the prayer, this Saturday coming is our uh, day retreat, where they come out and there's multiple lessons on who the Holy Spirit is. And so, please be in prayer for us. People far from Jesus, like Ed... Ed the logger from Cranbrook that I met on Thursday when I dropped my wife and our son Brendan off at the airport in Abbotsford to fly to Saskatchewan because he met a girl from Saskatchewan when he went to Briarcrest and now they're getting married and lo and behold, look what love does. It moves a BC boy to go and live permanently in Saskatchewan. <laughs> son, what we do for love. They're getting married June 1st. Our daughter's getting married May 11th. Yes, thank you. I appreciate those groans of sympathy. So I, I drop off Anne and Brendan at the airport in Abbotsford, and I'm coming back, and I'm going to get on the freeway at Clearbrook, and here's this guy pouring rain, standing there trying to get a ride to Cranbrook. I don't know that yet, of course, but I'm about to find out. And I see he's wearing a Mac jacket, and he's got canvas pants, and he's got a backpack, and I say to myself, ah, he doesn't look like a serial killer. I'll pick him up. So... I, well, it's always that fear, right? This is a wise thing or not. Kids, talk to your parents. Okay, I'm not saying do this, but I did. So I pick up the guy. He gets in the car. His name's Ed, and he wants to go to Cranbrook. I said, I can get you to Abbotsford. He was very pleased by that. He was happy to be out of the rain. And we get talking. Uh, Ed's a little older than me, not much. And as we get talking, I realize that he's down here in the lower mainland because he came down to see if the girl whom he loved, his one love, still loved him, and she did not. 
and his heart is broken. And there's tears. He's, you know, getting choked up. And so I take that as an opportunity to show obvious sympathy to a person who's got their heart broken. And soon it turns into more questions, which turns into a conversation. And I've only got 20 minutes with the guy between Abbotsford and Chilliwack, right? Or 25 or what? I mean, let's just say about 20 minutes. And um, I slowed down just to give us more time. I want to hear this guy's story, right? And as we're talking and sharing, I asked him, Ed, what, what do you think about God? And he goes, God spoke to me once. And he's a logger, and he had an experience out in creation, as he put it. And I said, you're right, Ed. God does speak to us through creation. But he also speaks through us through a very specific message. And God has a plan for you. And this message is one of hope for each and every one of us. Ed, you need to meet God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus can heal your heart. Jesus can guide your life. Jesus has a plan for your life. And so I shared that with him, and he seemed open with it enough. I dropped him off at the Husky restaurant here in Chilliwack, and I asked him if I could pray with him, and he said, sure. And so we prayed together, and Ed went on his way. Now, I have no clue what God is going to do with that in Ed's life. I don't know. And I didn't lead Ed to the point of praying to receive Christ. I just pointed him towards Christ. All I know is that I come alive in my faith when I meet someone far from Jesus, someone who does not yet know the Lord, and I'm able to close that gap or point them to Christ or plant a seed or whatever your language is in that understanding so that God will do his work in that person's life and they too will experience this incredible message of good news that is found in Jesus Christ. Why? Because a person can have their life set free when they meet Jesus. That's why I've chosen this theme, a life set free. There were many uh, words around what you could choose for a theme in Galatians. By faith alone would be one, the good news of Christ, the gospel of grace. There's lots of things you could have chosen, but I liked a life set free. Now there's three outcomes I'm hoping for in this series as we go through it. One, that if you're not clear on what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, that you will be. Uh, in other words, that at the end of this series, if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel, that you'd be able to, to tell them. Secondly, that if you yourself have never come to a place of trusting in Christ, as Galatians is going to lay out for us, my prayer would be that you would put your faith in Christ during this series. And thirdly, that for all of us, by knowing this gospel of grace for ourselves, by truly owning it, that we will become more grace-filled people who radiate out the love of Christ. I don't want to radiate out the rules and regulations that I think you need to live by. I want to radiate out the love of Jesus Christ that becomes a winsome invitation for anyone to meet Jesus and let Christ do the work in that person's heart. So Artist Fellowship, I don't get to go around to too many other churches out there. I'm kind of tied up on Sunday mornings. Um, I don't know what other churches emphasize, but as long as I'm called to this role to be the lead pastor in this church, I will continue to emphasize the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is by grace through faith that we are saved. That is where the power to break the curse of sin over us and to set a life free is. That's where we have to go each and every time. It comes out of Galatians in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And we're going to get into that as we go through Galatians. A life set free. Now, before we get into the content of the letter, I want to look at Paul himself. Uh, the reason why is this. I believe that if we don't fully grasp who Paul is and his experience in his own faith journey, we don't really understand Galatians. And Galatians includes a fair bit of his personal um, experience. 
No one believed in the law of Moses more than Paul himself, right? You may know his story. No one rivaled his commitment or his passion for God, not only in keeping the law, but also in forcing other people to keep the law. And when they didn't keep the law, when they failed, he, he punished them. And this is how he puts it in his own words. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem where the you know, the other apostles were, Peter, James, and John, to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Now, this calling that he refers to here, um, the calling of God, by God's grace on Paul's life, this revealing of who the Son was, was a supernatural experience for Paul. You probably know the story, right? It was a blinding light. It was a voice from heaven, and it caused Paul to stop. First and foremost, stop, and then to listen, and then to experience the grace of God. Now, the reason why I'm kind of pausing here is because if you understand his experience, you will understand his message and why he's standing firm on this gospel. And so I'm going to take the time this morning, in case someone's new here and you haven't read this recently or haven't read this recently, I want to read that encounter from Acts chapter 9. We're just going to read it. It's a great story of how God met Paul, how Jesus met him while he was on that road to Damascus. So let's read this together. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is the way they term Christians, followers of Christ, the way, whether men or women, he might take Uh, them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, which is Jesus, 
who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues. What was he preaching? That Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. It is key to understand that the experience that the Apostle Paul had with Jesus on that road to Damascus changed his mind between two things. Either you keep the law perfectly and are made righteous, or you trust in Jesus Christ and are made righteous in your standing before God. That was the good news gospel message that God was calling him to preach to the Gentile world. So that's Paul's story. Let's take a look at Galatia, which is a region. It's not a city. There are many different cities within the area of Galatia. Galatia is the place where Paul planted churches. I don't know if you can see those red lines there, blue lines and whatnot, but Paul took different missionary journeys. And uh, you can see Jerusalem, which would be the center for Jewish wor worship and where Peter and James were in that church. You see Damascus, that's where he was heading when he met Jesus. You see Antioch, that was his um, the first church that sent him and Barnabas out on these missionary journeys. And you see Galatia over there, which is a region of modern-day Turkey, where Paul was speaking and preaching in these different cities within Galatia, and these churches were planted. So that's the context. Now, the people in this area of Galatia were not Jewish people. They were, they were Romans, Roman citizens, Greek uh, in their background, and they were called Gentiles because they were not Jewish in their descent. So any person that was not of Jewish lineage would be called a Gentile. Those are the people that Paul took the gospel to, and he planted churches on his first missionary journey, which was only a couple years before he's writing this letter. So only after two years of being there, or not even quite, he then sends this letter to them. He not only knew these people, but he loved these people. They were brothers and sisters in Christ for him. They were like children to a parent, right? That kind of relationship that Paul had with him. But something has gone wrong. It's gone drastically wrong. They've been duped into believing a different gospel than the one that Paul had preached to them. It's for this reason that Paul has an aggressive style in this letter of how it's written. It's polemical. I don't know if you've ever heard that word before. I learned it about seven years ago. It means to have an argument that's aggressive, opposing the viewpoint of the other person. And so you're going to kind of see this hostility uh, in this letter of how Paul very forcefully is arguing against something, okay? Galatians is an argument against something. Uh, the challenge is for us is to fill in the blank because we're not exactly sure. It doesn't tell us what, who the people were. It doesn't tell us what their accusations against Paul and his teaching were. And so we're left to try to fill in the blanks by deducing from one side of the argument what that is like. It's kind of like listening to someone on a phone call having a conversation, and, and you're listening to the person, and you hear them say, yeah, sure, I, I think that'll work for me. And you think, well, what will work for them? And three o'clock? Yeah, three. Yeah. Well, three o'clock what? Starbucks? Luck o'clock? Okay. Yeah. And they get off the phone. And we deduce from that that they're going to meet someone at Starbucks 
Anglakakuk at three o'clock for coffee. What we don't know is we don't know who, and we don't know the nature of that conversation. Is it a person that is confronting them about something? Or is it a person that's a really good friend and just wants to meet for coffee? We don't know. So when you come to Galatians, that's kind of the nature of it is you don't really know who are these ones that have been coming to dupe the people that Paul does know, and what, what exactly is this message that they were preaching? Now, we get hints of it, but we have to be careful. It is one-sided. We get the gist of what's going on based on Paul's response, which is quite aggressive against what these other ones were teaching. So let's begin to look at the letter. There are what we call the twin themes of Galatians, which is faith and freedom. Galatians 2.16 says, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, 1 and 13 is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That's a reference to keeping the law. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Faith and freedom. Now, at the beginning of the letter, Paul's greeting is very short, which is unusual. Um, he gets right into to the church of Galatia, and he spells out how he normally does when he greets a church, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's how he opens. But usually what he does is he goes into thanksgiving and praise for the people themselves. And he doesn't do that in this letter. So this is an unusual um, introduction to a letter from Paul to churches that he's planted. Usually he has something good and encouraging to say about them, but this is what he does. He jumps right into, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul lays out the problem pretty succinctly there. You can see that um, the, the issue is that they were called by God to live in the grace of Christ. Now they are turning to a different gospel, which he says is not a gospel at all. Because the word gospel means good news. And you've just stripped the good news from the message. You're listening to some people who are throwing you into confusion. They are perverting the gospel of Christ. The gospel Paul preached to them and that they had received was a classic case of all for nothing or all or nothing kind of scenario. Do you know what I mean by that? It's either all or nothing. There's no half and half or mixing this. It's either Christ has done it or he has not. That's why he's so astonished that they're moving away from the grace of Christ, this gospel of Christ. The grace of Christ is only good news if it's 100% accomplished in what Christ did. If there's something more you must add to what Christ did on the cross, there's two results. One, it's not good news for you because you still got some work to do and you could fail. And two, it's not good news for Jesus Christ because you wasted your time going to the cross. What's the point? Why die on the cross, Jesus? Save your pain and agony and suffering. Save your body. Save your blood from what you went through on that cross if it's not all or nothing. person might think, ah, come on, Paul, you're being a little harsh there. It's just a little change here or there, a little addition to the gospel. Paul says, no way. The language gets very forceful. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we have preached to you, let them be under God's curse. Exclamation mark. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Okay, so obviously this is a very strong warning. This is extreme language. How many of us go around saying, you're under God's curse? We don't do that, right? Why is Paul doing this? And I had to look into this a bit like, yeah, this is kind of in your face, right? But he's actually just saying that you're under the curse that you were under until Christ came. So let's explore that a little bit. You see, when they are stepping away from the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're stepping away from the new covenant. They're stepping outside of it. They're going back into what? Into doing it themselves. Into keeping the law what? Perfectly. Perfectly. And Paul's like, that's impossible. I tried it. You cannot keep the law perfectly. Therefore, you're stepping back under the curse of God. We're all under the curse of God in that we have a problem with sin. No one teaches you how to sin. You're good at it right from the cradle. Not my grandchildren. They're angels. Thank you very much over there. But, you know, I've seen other people's grandkids. My goodness (laughs) sakes. No one teaches us this because we have a natural tendency, a bend towards sin. Where does that come from? That comes from a predisposition that is brought on to me as a human being. The moment that I'm born, I have this trajectory. No, it's time before I act on it. Some people act on it really quickly. Some people take a while. But nonetheless, eventually we all act on it. And that's when the curse of the law comes down on us. That's when the curse of God comes down on us. Why? Because I have a problem with sin. What are you going to do about it? I know. I'll just keep the law perfectly. (laughs) No. God can't just wink at sin. He can't just look at it and go, okay, it's not that big of a deal. No problem, guys. Come on in. No. Well, God is love. He's also just. And his justice means that it must be dealt with. Now, the love of God moves his heart to take care of what justice demands of sin. That's why he sent his one and only son into the world to save us from our sins, right? To die on the cross. He paid the price for our sin. That was what this is all about, this table that we're going to celebrate in a moment. You see, it's God's terms now. And the terms that God has for us is to put our faith and trust in Jesus because that's his one and only son. That's the one who died. He's the perfect sacrifice. And to reject that is to reject God's terms and therefore you're under the curse of sin again. Paul says in Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Why? Because they can't keep it perfectly. It's not that the law is bad. It's that it doesn't have the ability to do that, to save. It is a curse because it can't do what you think it can do. You cannot keep the law perfectly. Therefore, the law becomes a curse because you are trusting in it what it can't do. Or more precisely, what you can't do. It's like trying to get to the moon by jumping on a trampoline. You just think, well, if I work at it, try a little harder, jump a little harder. It's not enough. Therefore, if you spent your entire life jumping on a trampoline trying to get to the moon, it would be a curse. Why? Because it's impossible. And what Paul is saying, that is what the law is. By trying to become righteous, by keeping it perfectly, it's impossible. Think about the irony for Paul here. Paul is not only a Jewish person, but he's someone who signed up to become a Pharisee. So he went through all of the teachings and the rigors of becoming disciplined in order to keep the law right. We've already heard his story. He's done all of that, and then he meets Jesus, and 
He realizes his own sin. He realizes his own shortcomings. He realizes that he would have never have made it on his own, even though he was more passionate than his peers and all that kind of stuff, right? So Paul realizes he's not going to make it. Then he has a calling on him, Paul. Take this gospel of good news, of grace in Jesus Christ. Take it to the Gentile people, the people that don't have the law of the Jewish people. Take, take it to them, Paul. And he's obedient, and he goes out with Barnabas, and they plant these churches amongst the people who are lawless because they have no law, and they hear about Christ, and they receive Christ, and they receive this message, and they experience the wonderful blessings that come from that message of receiving Christ. And within a year and a half to two years, they're now trying to add the law. And Paul's pulling his hair out. He's like, this is so ironic. This is ludicrous. You can't do that. And so he says to the Galatian people, he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? This is serious stuff. Paul isn't upset because his feelings are hurt, because they're attacking his character. Or, you know, how could you do this to me that you're turning back? And, you know, that's not it. He's not being petty in his rebuke here. He is concerned because they're tampering with the gospel message, the truth of God. Douglas Moo put it like this. The sole sufficiency of the cross as God's power for new life is the issue at stake. In other words... You're going to lose the new life part in Christ because you're bailing on Christ. You're going to lose the power of God. Paul is not being petty here. That's not his point at all. He's trying to prevent them from going down a path that will lead them back into slavery. So he says, am I trying now to win the approval of human beings or of God? Now again, well, who said that, Paul? there was an attack against Paul that probably said something like, oh yeah, he goes in with this message, he gets a lot of followers and all this. He's just trying to impress people, he's trying to get a following. You know that kind of slanderous stuff, something like that, right? And Paul says, who am I trying to please now? You? No. God? Yeah. You better believe it. Because you cannot mess with this message. You change this message and you have no salvation in Jesus Christ. The law leads us to Christ. And once it has done that, it's complete. It's done its work. It has served its purpose, but the law does not save. Only Jesus saves. We're going to leave it there today in Galatians 1. And next week we'll come back into Galatians 2. But you've tasted in this letter already in Galatians the importance of not moving away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. To not move away from what this table represents. These elements are just elements. It's the life of Christ. The bread and the blood represent the giving of his life that we might be set free. And we never want to compromise that. And the good news of this gospel is that it's for everyone. You don't have to achieve it. You have to receive it. Everyone is welcome to this table. We all come on equal footing. That, too, is the good news of the gospel. I am no closer to that table than you are, other than the fact I'm standing right here. I am no closer to meriting taking the elements of that table than any other person in this room. That is the grace of Jesus Christ. No, we don't take it flippantly. We take it from a sincere heart. We take it from a heart of reflection, and we want to give that opportunity to you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up at this time. And I'm going to invite the ushers, if uh, they could come down the aisle with a few extras of these, because I know that every time we hand these out, someone gets missed, and we don't want you to be missed. So as they come down the aisle, 
uh, which they're about to do now, just indicate by raising your hand and they'll make sure that you get one of our communion cups that has uh, the, the bread on the top and then the juice underneath. But I want you to focus your thoughts on this verse. One of the clearest passages in scripture of what the gospel is all about. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. And I hope you can see that message there. As we come to the communion table today, I'm going to leave the verse up there for you for a moment that you can reflect on it. The worship team is going to be playing a song quietly for a few moments to give you a chance to reflect on that thought. If you want to open this now, you can. Um, It's kind of nice to open them right away and everyone makes the noise at the same time. Should we do that? And I want to read for you the words of Scripture on the night that Jesus first held this meal with his disciples. And he took elements of the meal, the bread and the wine, and he gave them new meaning. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So reflect on the words of Scripture. Reflect on what Christ has done for you. And when you're ready, you can participate. And when the band is playing and singing, if you would like to sing along, you can do that when you're ready as well. May God bless you as you participate. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.